This season of Design Tangents is presented by Genesis. You can learn more about the brand and their vehicles at genesis.com. You go for why me? Because you're the artist <laughs> with the big A. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nick Cave, artist. Hi, I'm Bob Faust, and I'm a designer and an artist. He is. Mm-hmm. I'm Josh Rubin. I'm Evan Ornston, and we're the founders of Cool Hunting. We create original content across many categories, and our work is rooted in creativity and innovation. One of the great things about our job, and I think Josh, you'd agree, is that we get to meet so many incredible people, and many of them are heroes and true inspiration for us. So being able to sit down with Nick Cave and Bob Faust was incredibly inspiring. Nick Cave has become a very well-known artist, and we're excited to dig into his work and his practice. We're also really excited to talk about the collaboration and partnership that he has with Bob Faust. Both Nick and Bob have separate practices as artists, but collaborate together. And as a creative duo and couple, we felt it would be rewarding to sit down and hear how they collaborate together and live together. While we were with Nick and Bob at their studio in Chicago, we got a sneak peek at some work in progress that won't be presented to the public for a couple of years. And that opportunity to see an artist's process was a great reminder that the work we see in galleries and museums sometimes takes years to create. was such a treat. It's amazing and inspiring to see people work so hard on things that take so long to become visible. Today we're in Chicago, and it's great to be back. Evan and I lived here briefly back in the early 2000s. Kuanting was created in our kitchen here in Chicago in Wicker Park almost 20 years ago to the date. Right now we're in the incredible creative space where artists Nick Cave and Bob Faust live and work in Chicago's Irving Park neighborhood. Nick, Bob, thank you so much for welcoming us to your amazing gallery, community space, studio and home. I've been a fan of your work since the sound suits. And Josh and I saw your show at Mass Mocha back in 2016. And that was not only a great immersion for us into your work, but also that work in that space. It was an incredible way in which it was installed and, and experienced. As we've spent a little bit of time with you, Evan and I are sensing a bit of kindred spiritness. You're a couple like Evan and me. You have your own separate work and interests, but you also collaborate and work together. Among other things, in this episode, we want to dig into that Venn diagram of your creative collaboration. What's Nick's? What's Bob's? What's yours together? But first, for some of our listeners who might not know who you are or what you do, can you share a little bit more about your work? So I am an artist, but I've never sort of taken ownership of why I do what I do. I've always sort of used it as a way to bring us together, as a way to talk about difficult uh, subjects. It has saved my life at the same time. You know, for me, art has always been this vehicle for change, and, and it's the place that I go to to work through. A lot of things. I'm fortunate to have such an amazing way of, of 
processing and delivering. And I'm an artist and a designer, designer by trade for the past 30 years. And so when it moves over into that art space, I like to just say that the medium of that work is design. And where I'm coming from with that is almost always rooted in typography of some sort, whether it's meant to be read or the shapes are being used to imply a feeling or an emotion and just giving you more context for whatever that idea is. So you'll see those bits and pieces throughout everything, whether you want to categorize it as art or design. I think the other thing about my practice is that it's generally either very minimalist or very maximalist. Um, yeah, maximalist or minimalist. I don't really love that between space, but I really like the between space of art and design. We were able to spend a little bit of time with you before we sat down to record this, and we talked a little bit about the things you're working on. So a book is coming out, a show that you're working on that opens in two years, an installation that you just completed that anyone can see if you happen to be at the airport in Kansas City. It's called The Air Up There. But why don't we start with kind of how you got there? Take us back a little bit. You know, I grew up looking at Michael Jackson, and I looked at my mother one day, and I said, I'm going to be playing this. I didn't know what, <laughs> it, in what capacity or what what that looked like in terms of a sort of medium. But I just saw him and I saw myself. That's hilarious. And then I just was, you know, honey in the hustle. You know what that means. Ups and downs and Went to art school, the Kansas City Art Institute, then went to Cranbrook for my master's. I'm in Chicago because my professor and my closing meeting at Cranbrook said, oh, and by the way, you have a job at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. That's why I'm here and how I got here. Straight out of school. Straight out of school. But I've always been creative. You know, as a kid growing up with seven brothers, you know, hand-me-downs, I was like, oh, God. I can't wear this shirt. So I'm cutting and putting things back together and reworking things. And so I didn't know what that meant, but I, all I knew that it needed, I needed to sort of claim it as something else. And so that was the beginning. But, you know, growing up in a sort of surrounding where, you know, I grew up around makers, uh, woodworkers, painters, uh, my mother comes from a family of 16 amazing seamstresses. You know, I saw all of that, but wasn't really doing it, but curious about it. That was really kind of this world that I sort of was rooting in. You know, my grandmother would quilt after dinner every night, and I just found comfort in sitting there with her. So that was really special, and I tend to do that when I'm in the studio with myself and just sort of completely in tune. But, you know, I've always been sort of fearless. I just jump in. I don't know where I'm going to land, but I'm going to land somewhere, somehow. That's just part of my sort of 
nature of always being willing to risk it. I think if I don't have the risk, then I'm bored or I, I, I sort of move on to something else. It has to have sensibility of uh, the unknown, like this new body of work. I, I see it, but I don't know it. I'm gambling, but that's just how I play. Bob, are you similarly <laughs> loose like that? You is your kind of probably not different. quite as loose as that at the end of the day. But like I was listening to your story and I'm thinking to myself, it, it's there are similarities in that young part. Like when I was in grade school, I was always been kind of a not a quiet sounding kid, but a quiet kid in terms of like popularity, quiet, like to myself. And my parents would always on Fridays and Saturday nights play poker downstairs. I'd be home by myself and they've always given me kind of carte blanche to whatever my room was. And I know that those evenings I would just go up there with a gallon of paint and I would change the color of the room, move the room around. And then they'd all come up because they played until midnight and then they'd go once around the table. So it was always done at around one in the morning. They'd all come up to see what I did in that room. It would be a totally different color or a new wall would be painted like kind of murally. Or as I got older, I started to take the sheets off the bed, paint the sheets, and then hang the sheets so I could have like a living room and a, you know, a bedroom or a little studio. So I was always doing that. So in in a way, that freedom that you like your four walls of your bedroom can be whatever you want was a really lucky way to grow up to know that creativity not only is yours to do what you want with, but also they, these, you know other parents, uncles, aunts, they were all coming up and being excited about it. They weren't mad about it. They didn't necessarily love it, but they loved that I was just busying myself and making something. So I do think that I always knew I was going to do something creative, but it took a bit because back in the day, high schools didn't necessarily teach you about creative pursuits. And in fact, they didn't even tell you that you had hundreds of college choices. They told you you had these three. If your grades met this level, you go to U of I. If they met this level, you go to another school. And if they met this level, you go to a third. And so I didn't even know graphic design existed until a year of college. And you were drawn to it? Totally. I knew that there was some kind of way to make money with creativity. And I had an inkling it was in advertising in college. That was the closest I came to understanding how you make money being creative. And so once I got to school and started to look around, the fine the fine arts were more interesting. And then you saw that, oh, there's professional pursuits within the fine arts. But I had to find that. And so, you know, you kind of start over as a sophomore. So you do not have six or seven brothers or sisters? No, but similarly one generation back, my grandmother's the oldest of 20. So she raised most of her s siblings. And when she got married at 16, my mom was older than several of her aunts and uncles and would babysit her aunts and uncles. So our family is like this gigantic Italian-American clan from the west side of Chicago. Your great-grandmother yeah. had 20 yeah. children. And if you're a, like a kind of an introverted kid, you don't go out of your way to necessarily make all those relationships. So when and where did y'all meet? 
starts off that Nick was trying to make rent. So he had to have a sweater sale. But a mutual friend of ours invited me to the sweater sale. He's like, you're going to really love what this guy's making. And I show up, you're met with this like, oh, there's three people here and a whole bunch of sweaters and I'm going to be leaving with the sweater. You have no choice when you walk in that store. So I start flipping through the sweaters on the rack, getting a hold of myself because this is Nick Cave's sweaters. And as you can imagine, they're not a typical sweater. And I'm a pretty typical guy at that time, right? So I'm flipping through one arm's longer than the other. There's a hole in the chest. There might be like a baby sweater sewn onto the front of an adult sweater. And I'm like, I, I, I can't. I, I can't any of these sweaters. And I'm not even looking at the pricing yet, right? And then I find a brown one, little mock turtleneck. Like, I think I could do the brown mock turtleneck. And then I see that the arms are long, but I could manage long arms. So I grab that one and I'm ready to run out the door. He stops me and he says, why don't you go try that on in the office, you know, office at the time? So I go, okay, go into the office and try on the sweater. And all of a sudden he comes in with like a stack of sweaters to try on. Look, you could wear like, if I was designing sweaters with someone, it would had been for him in terms of body type and just, you know, you could put on anything and it just looked amazing. Back in the day, you know, like J. Crew was the thing. Banana Republic was cool. Can't even imagine. <laughs> but that's what I was wearing. So this was crazy to me. Anyway, I put them on. It was really fun. That took down all of the nerves. And we just start talking. He's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a designer. My studio is just, you know, four blocks down the street. And so uh, here in Chicago. Yeah. And the, and the South Loop, this is back before the South Loop was the South Loop. Anyway, what do you do? I'm a designer. What do you do? You got to do something more than make sweaters. You know, these aren't in the store. It's like, well, I teach, but I also am an artist and I have this solo exhibition where I get to make my first catalog. And I'm like, aha, this is super Biz cool. Dev. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I can make that catalog. And I'm thinking, I can do a trade here. I don't have to pay for the sweater. Shiny, no. So I said, I said, when I have your name, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, if, why don't you come down to my studio tomorrow? And if you're interested in what I do, maybe we can. <laughs> do this project together was there a vibe yeah was there a vibe hmm. i think i told you guys this i i didn't come out till i was 42 43 years old so this is a whole nother podcast this story but the person i was at that time was unable to acknowledge that vibe so while today i could answer your question yes there was a vibe at that time it was another one of those uncomfortable feelings that I had to shove away. So there was not a vibe to act on, but there was an acknowledgement that I liked this human. There was, it was not a vibe to act on, but there was a vibe. And clearly it was the start of something. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, this is the, the coolest part about how this all started is that he came over. I showed him a few things. He's like, oh yeah, you can do this project. Now here's what I want. I don't want a book. I want an object. And that was just like, that was the coolest prompt I've ever gotten for a professional project. 
I want this thing that has definitions around it, but I want it to be this thing that has other definitions. And I was like, I, you couldn't have given me a better, um, the thing I love most about design are parameters. And now you just gave me two sets of parameters that kind of don't overlap at all. And I got to solve it. It was awesome. Yes, the sweater sale. Yes, I needed to rent. Yes, you were going to buy a sweater. I mean, that's just how it works. But when we connected in terms of like knowing that he was this designer, I was like, well, let's sort of see. And so for me, it was like everything else. I don't want a book. I want an object. You know, that's all I know. I don't know what that means in terms of how that may be as, as, it, as it takes form and shape. That's the other cool But thing I was very interested in sort of like the process of that. Like, how do we get there? How do we figure that out? And I looked at his other work and, and sort of knew right away he could do it. And you wanted him to do it. It was oh, yeah. just convenient. It was, <laughs> it was convenient. <laughs> Oh, at first, because I just had not like even started to really like dive into that. But I'm like, you're four blocks away. I mean, like I can come over and that sounds terrible. Know, check it out and see what's going on. It's not terrible. It's sounds not terrible. You know, opportunities come together like that. You know, you never know when you're gonna. So you were ready, and I was ready. So it happened. Do you have <laughs> that catalog? Yeah, this was a book. And the idea to turn it into an object was that there was no binding in the book. And just like his work that's assembled from multiple and many, many objects, the idea was to design the book so that it was delivered to you in a certain order, in a certain way, in four different signatures that were categorized like anyone would design a book in a really coherent way. But that if he was to visit that collector 20 years from that day, it would be reassembled because someone opened it and it shifted and it would be reassembled. And no matter what order it was put back together, it would all make sense. The covers were just four pieces of cardboard, each of them printed with a different pattern so that covers could go together in all different ways as well. And we were so happy with the process of doing it that we made a project every year for the next five or six years to be working on together. So that's how we can establish a relationship. It was a working relationship that then became a friendship that later turned into a, literally a business relationship where we started a business together and then a relationship relationship. Our partner for Design Tangents is Genesis, the luxury Korean automaker. Let's be honest. A lot of sponsored episodes sound like commercials, and we're incredibly pleased that our conversation with Luke Donkerwalk and Sang-Yup Lee, the creative visionaries at Genesis, was so insightful and engaging. We learned a lot about their approach to design innovation and what defines one of the core principles, which is being distinctly Korean. They've done so much so quickly to build the brand and design an entire lineup of gorgeous cars. We've seen their work, we know their hand, and we're really impressed and happy to have learned more about the brand and their vision for it. Listen to our episode with them in our season one lineup. And if you want to learn more about the brand and their cars, visit Genesis.com. Let's fast forward a little bit. A lot has happened. 
And if I had to describe you both, I would say you're both very multi-hyphenate. You do lots of things. You're both creatives, but that's expressed through art. It's expressed through design, it's expressed through installation and books, renovating this incredible space that you have and starting a nonprofit. It is being super engaged with your community. There are lots and lots and lots of things that have happened in that time. I think you're still hustling. As you said, it's always about the hustle. The hustle never stops, but it's certainly taken a different turn. And this year, there's a lot happening for your work separately and together. There are four simultaneous shows plus an installation you just did last week, that one in Kansas City. So there's five active things that have just gone up. There's this incredible line of materials that have just launched with Noel. There's a lot. It's funny. There's always a lot. So like it, it doesn't feel overwhelming right now. Sometimes it feels overwhelming, right? It feels okay. Yeah, it feels okay. It's always a lot of things going on, a lot of projects in the works, but it's really just sort of keeping a clear calendar of what's in the forefront as opposed to what's four or five years down the road. I'm not interested in working under stress and under the pressure. You know, I know what that calendar looks like. I know how the studio has to function in order for us to get everything done. We never work overtime. You know, and that's just because I really am interested in just being in the moment and present. And for me, the process is really, really important. I'm not one for sketching a lot as opposed to spending a great deal of time thinking and working through it before I really even start to communicate about it. It takes a minute for me to sort of gather all of that and, and uh, get real clear. And I tend to just be quiet a lot in order to to have an understanding. And so although, you know, as you were mentioning, all of the sort of things happening right now, in terms of quality, it's always very high. That's just the standard. So that's not even something that needs to be worked out. It's just is. That is what it is. And so there are these sort of moments working with Bob on some of the work. The standards there, I don't have to think about it. We just work at that level. The studio production is just there. So that makes it makes up for a lot of time when we're clear, when we know what the vision is, and everything just sort of falls into place. Because if I'm stressed out and and then the studio's stressed out, and it's just you know, it's just not the environment that I'm that I want to be in. Ephraim, yeah, I think I I I like everything that you're saying and i think that a lot of times the quiet and the pre pre preparation for when you actually start to activate on a idea the amount of productivity is kind of unreal because it is just one thing i think in the world today most people aren't operating from a single i'm focused on one thing everybody's like multitasking all the time and with you and your practice, while there might be many things going on at one time, it's clearly I'm on this right now, or I'm on this right now, or I'm on this right now. And so those advances are super significant in less time. 
and they're clear. So it's not as iterative as maybe I work. When the decision happens, that's the object. It's pretty interesting. Timelines are different because we're what we're seeing now, you worked on years ago leading up to this point and for some of these things, right? You have a show, you gave us the great special treat of a sneak preview of work you're working on for a show two years from now, right? It's just the very beginning of that journey. But when we look at Furthermore, which was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago before it just went to the Guggenheim, largely that's work that is done in the past and is assembled, put together for that show. But there's there's kind of interesting timelines crisscrossing. You know, it's really the task at hand. It's like, I'm thinking about Noel, I'm thinking about like the MCA show. I may have to jump on the plane and go to New York. I'm transitioning the mind. I just sort of turn it off over here, turn it on over here, just sort of like this navigation that I've always done. But again, there's a standard, regardless if it's my personal artwork or if I'm collaborating with a corporation or collaborating with Bob on a project or if we're doing something for facility, it's the standard that guides everything. Aesthetically, it just has to, we, I cannot put anything out there unless it meets. I love your ability to be able to turn one thing off and turn the next thing on. Pretty remarkable. Bob, you talked about, not earlier in this conversation, but previously you talked about yoga and running and nature and the ocean. Are those influences that you use or that help you find focus and help you kind of pursue direction or change direction? Yeah, without question, it's those, all of those places, either in it or directly after it, where the creative ideas come for me. Because my day-to-day work is quite different than his because I'm doing my own work, of course, but I'm also doing my work that's with or for him, but also managing all the projects along the way. So I kind of look at like once nine o'clock hits, I don't want to say it's administrative brain, but it is splintered brain all day long, all day long. And so in order to get good work to come out, whether it's for me or for you or for us or for someone else, I have to have that solid chunk of mind time that switches it. And yoga is awesome for it. Running is fantastic for it. But so was just looking at the lake. Among the merch that you all have made for some of the exhibitions, there are yoga mats. Mm -hmm. Hearing all of this, it takes on a whole other level. So a really fun part about the yoga mat is they weren't easy to produce because they're a hard thing to sell because they're a high dollar amount. And we found the opportunity to make them at Expo. And so we did a, a collaboration, a project with 21C, our hotels. And they wanted us to design the booth for 21C. And yeah, we can design the booth, but that also wasn't super interesting to just design a booth. You know, he's got a a booth with all his art's already like everything right there. We're like, we can make this a really fun opportunity. We talked to them about 
their commitment to each local community that they go into. And they were about to move into Chicago. And so we said, well, let's just make your booth not about showing off 21C as an art hotel, but show you off as a community member. So we made that booth into a space where if you went in there, you can have your tarot card read or your energy read. And we made wallpapers that you can cut off and take for free so that can change your own environment. And yoga mats that we actually did a whole class for anyone at Expo in all their clothes, buy the yoga mat, have the free class. And so we got to make our yoga mats, but we also got to make them with a bit of play, but engagement. And that project became something really fun and worth putting a lot of energy toward as opposed to just designing a booth for four days. I love this idea of like important markers in time. And, and you talked about your first encounter, a pivotal moment was paying your rent up. And you had a means to do that. You were going to invite friends and friends of friends over to buy sweaters. and You made your rent. And that's a pivotal moment. That month, that was probably an incredible high. Like, yes, I. you never said that you paid your rent, but I'm assuming you oh, actually rose that was, you raised know, the money. To do it. I paid my rent for four or five months. So in that moment, that was extremely pivotal. It was pivotal in that moment, but it also told me a lot about possibility in terms of like, oh, hmm, could I be a, a fashion designer? These moments where you're like seeing results, seeing how the getting feedback, you sort of learn about what you're doing. So, you know, it's just, you know, a light bulb comes on like, oh, like, hmm. Should I or should I not pursue that? And if I wasn't an artist, I would certainly be a designer, fashion designer, for sure, hands down. I'd be a plastic surgeon. For tour. Plastic surgeon? Yeah. Totally. You might have a TV show, too. Total TV show, plastic surgeon. Okay. We've, we've got, like, multiple podcasts. Right. We have a lot. That are going to branch season. off of this. Like, this isn't just about little tangents. Like, we're going <laughs> big tangents. with the tangents. <laughs> I love it. For a whole new podcast coming your way. This is Amy Devers, host of Clever. My podcast brings you conversations you're not going to hear anywhere else with the visionaries and creative forces who shape our world and culture. It's a compelling mix of raw candor and honest shop talk that reveals the humanity behind the design of the world around us. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Head over to surroundpodcast.com or follow Clever wherever you get your podcasts. I think Mass Mocha was a pivotal moment. You know, Denise Marconish, the curator that I was working with there, you know, she came to the studio and she was like, you know, I'm interested in you doing a project in, in, in Gallery 5. And uh, when was that? She came maybe 2014. And she goes, I'm going to go away and come back in a year. And she goes, only one stipulation, you can't do sound suits. And I was like, yes. Because you'd produced that body of work. And it was quite popular. And I was at that moment where I was like, eh, trying to sort of like phase out of that. So it was- Building five is also a football field in size. Yeah. Like a sound suit would be 
minuscule. Dwarfed in it. Yeah. For those that don't know, I mean, Mass Smoke is an incredible place, and hopefully you all have the opportunity to, to go and visit. And yes, heard you do so. And, and Gallery 5 is, is literally a football field space with enormous ceilings, and you really have to create things intentionally for that volume of space. You can't just place existing things because they just get swallowed up by it. Yeah. Had you seen other exhibitions <laughs> in that space? A number of exhibitions in that space, but I'd never been in the space empty. And so I told Denise, when it's empty, let me know so I can fly out. Because what I tend to do, like when I have these sort of amazing opportunities such as Mass Mocha, is I tend to go there and I have to surrender my body, myself, over to that space. We went there. And I just laid in the middle of the space and just took it in. Hadn't decided what I was going to do and then came back and, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it. You know, I just was sort of like, I don't know, something will happen. And then Michael Brown and I had a pivotal moment in the studio because as I was listening to that incident, this idea of is there racism in heaven came to mind. And that was the catalyst that sort of started that project. The only thing that I knew is that I wanted to put you into the belly of a sound suit. And what that means is instead of it's concealing, I wanted to then expose what is really behind the work. And so that space allowed me to do that. The thrill was so exciting. And I had to fucking pull it off. So that's how the Crystal Cloudscape was created, asking the question, is there racism in heaven? And so I knew that that was going to be the heart of the space. That just led down this sort of path, thinking about the reoccurring incidents of harm on black bodies and yet we are viewing it from our TVs and yet it's right in our backyards. And so then that led to the wind spinner. Then that became this fantastical object that created this kinetic forest. That as you walk into that space, you were just in the space of wonder and awe. And then as you got closer to the spinners, you saw guns bullets. You know, I was interested in that punch in the stomach at the same time. And so forcing the viewer to sort of like, okay, grappling with these emotions, like, uh, what what am I supposed to do with this? You know, I feel this way, but yet I'm experiencing this. And so that's how that whole project came about. And then there was this amazing programming aspect of of the project. How did I want it to be used? And so that was just fabulous in itself. And then this is where I asked Bob to participate and doing a number of wall works that supported the exhibition. Yeah, that was an incredibly generous and also fortunate place to be, to push my work to a whole different level because it's Yes, absolutely in support of his work, but it also is its own thing inside of an art space. And this art space 
was going to accept this work because of this relationship. So there is so much. It's that's such an important ask and moment for me. Now I will say Denise was in support of it the whole time. So it never had any kind of feeling of pushback at all. But I don't know that that kind of opportunity would have ever arose for me without me being adjacent to you and the work. So it's, it's a very grateful place to be. Um, but similar to the prompt of that first book, where it's a broad ask without much specificity, that was the same for these walls. And these walls were not a title wall like you would typically put text up on and read the didactic and kind of set the stage for what you're about to look at. It was something to literally support the work inside the show. And so I took that main wall as an opportunity to, it, it's the wall you see when you walk out of the exhibition, as opposed mm -hmm. to the wall you see when you walk into. So I used it as an opportunity to say, I know that this experience was probably about a 45 minute experience for the typical goer. They're seeing wind spinners and reflective floor surfaces and they climbed 40 foot ladders to get on top of this crystal cloudscape. And it's loaded with thousands of objects that Nick has sourced in order to get across this idea of, is there racism in heaven? And then you're going to go through a 12 channel video room that's going to overwhelm you with like emotion and feeling. And then you're going to walk through this like mylar curtain that is going to wash you of all of those feelings. And so what does this wall need to do at the end of all this? And my intent was that as they're walking out, remind them of little bits of what they just saw because all of that was so much. And so how do I make sure that I support his work by helping them tell their story to their friend at the dinner table the next day is remind them of some of those tiny things that were in the cloud. Remind them of what it felt like to be in that worrying installation of video. Remind them of the guns that instigated the entire project and the lives that were lost. And so that was no longer graphic design. That was my way of um, making an, an artwork um, with all the tools I know how to use. It's a pretty major event. What does that feel like? It was so calming. If I could live in a space like that, I would. In eight C containers on Mass Mocha's parking lot. It's Mass Mocha. Mocha. Like, yeah. they engineered it and built it, all the structure, the infrastructure, the steelwork themselves. And, like, as Nick's building that crystal cloudscape, that heaven on top, he's literally holding a piece of rebar and saying, okay, spot weld it here. This is where it needs to go. Now it needs to hold a bird that's 12 feet or 12 inches tall and its base is shaped like this. And they're going back to the studio, cutting that, attaching it, and he's putting it in. This is not like any normal art making process I've ever seen. And in the midst of it, was the about. other super cool part is... If you could imagine, we just told you the whole story about it's always one subject, one time, tunnel vision. The most incredible thing happened. So you were there the whole time, but I was there the last eight weeks. 
And so that last eight weeks is, you know what it's going to look like, but there's a lot to do. And the curator from the Park Avenue Armory shows up. Can I get a meeting? I'm like, I don't think you should have a meeting right now, but it's no time from Park Avenue Armory. So he comes down while we're putting this thing together and he has the nerve to say, will you do a project at the Park Avenue Armory in the middle of all this? It was such an incredible ask. And all you can think about is that space is bigger than this one. What could it possibly be? And it's the most minimal project that he's ever made. So like that was just yeah, I, so incredible. Yeah, I had to completely like decompress. Like it, I just felt it's going to be one object, period. Yeah, one material. And if, if Mass Mocha is like going into the belly of the sound suit, Park Avenue Armory was like taking a macro lens on the edge of Tina Turner's skirt. And that's all it was. One thing. These opportunities are all sort of colliding, crossing paths, intersecting. But I just remained open to possibilities. Not that I'm going to say yes, but I'm like, okay, let me think about it. Because at the end of the day, this is where we're at right now. This is what the focus is. And but it was really quite fabulous working there. Mass Mocha and just seeing it come to fruition and just sort of like, you know, you think one one strand of spinners that are like how many per strand? Oh, that was a long one. Those were forty feet, so you know, probably like fifteen, twenty. And to think we have to fill this entire space with that. And I think another pivotal moment was Amir's. Mm. Tell us about amends. I was at home when George Floyd happened in my mother's. And I just was like, oh, you know, it's just too much. You know, you just, it's just like a lot. My mother could tell that I was like just on edge. And I was like, I got to go home. I, I knew that I needed to get back here to Chicago because I knew that I needed to respond. And Bob was here. And so I left my mother my visit with her early came back. I get in the house. They had just come from. We came back from a rally. A rally. And I was like literally like emotionally like just going through it. And he says to me, oh, we just came back from this amazing rally. We felt like we just were part of some positive movement because we had walked for six hours and we were going to share how strong that feeling was there. But I think we also felt like we did something more than we did. <laughs> we just walked. I was like so furious and just so on the edge. I said, well, if you're going to march about it, you've got to talk about it. Yeah. And that's what led this project. And that statement was the, the, most bold of all the text that was in the windows of that piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so then we were like, we have to like say something now. We have to use facility. This that was the first time I understood why we had the building. By the building you mean your facility. The building that we're in right now where you where you live and where you work, where there are windows out to the street. 
and you use them to display work and you rotate work and you provoke conversation and you engage community. Facility is is the name of the space, but it's also like a multi-purpose, not multi-purpose, but a multi-dimensional where it Mm -hmm. means a lot more than just the name of the building. That's the most important thing when we're titling an exhibition is that it has multiple reads. Like, until. That started out as guilty until proven innocent. That was going to be the title. And then it was innocent until proven guilty. And then it was some other hyphenate. And then it went down to until. And which got all the way back to until what? Until everything changes. And so you'll see that in every single title. Today, what is facility here to do? Facility is here to give opportunity or encouragement or access to young creatives, any discipline, to pursue that path. There are so many examples that are so simple of ways that you can encourage someone to take a step toward their passion as opposed to a step toward what's expected. When my first artwork was bought, that acknowledged that I really can do this thing. When someone at this level is able to be working with a preparator for three weeks installing a show, and they're all artists, and they open up their phone and start scrolling through, what do you think of my work? And he says, wow, that really has great promise. I'd love to see that in real life. That gives that person encouragement to push farther. So that's what this is about. And so whether it's an opportunity to show work, an opportunity to actually give someone money for a commission, an opportunity to award high school students and great school students, I don't want to say scholarships, but many acknowledgement awards so that they keep doing that through high school to learn that there's a creative path. And then it's at the same time, it's also this call and response lab that in the moment we'll take whatever's out of the window and we will use it. We're thinking about accountability and responsibility. It's also kind of messy because of that. We had an exhibition up in the window. It was artworks that people couldn't view through the vitrine windows. And something did happen. And we literally painted over the windows. You still can see the exhibition. It didn't come down. But the windows, another surface, became something that responded in the moment. And no art space, typical art space, gallery space, museum space, whatever, be able to do that. There'd be just too much to deal with there. But anybody that we're bringing in also understands that that's what this space is for. And so in a weird way, that just supports what's behind there because... They were chosen to be in there because their work is already doing things with purpose. What's your relationship with the high school across the street? The the building that has the most direct and frequent view of the work that you're exhibiting. There's a number of layers there. Yeah. The first and most important one is the one that we do no work for. And it's the bus stop is in front of our building. So there's always something in the windows and those kids, regardless of whether they're looking in because they're interested in the artwork, they're looking in and learning that artwork isn't just a painting. It might be fashion. It might be some weird tech thing on the wall. That's its most important job. And then also there is the entire wall line. 
that we've done. That's where amends was. Amends where we did an entire clothesline from one end of the lodge to the other. And it's massive titled Dirty Laundry. So that's uh, where anybody in the community could come and write on a yellow ribbon, tie it to a clothesline, and that covered the entire front lawn of the high school. Surprising that the high school allowed us to use it for that subject, but so amazing they did. And then they also participated in our very first project, mm -hmm. which was called Love Thy Neighbor. We passed out thousands of these little red and white tags that were rimmed in metal for people to at least put their name, but more often they made little sketches that represented who they were. And then they went up in a pattern where the red and white tags spelled love thy neighbor, which you could really only read from across the street because of its scale. They participated in many of those. And that was how we introduced ourselves to them. Community. The scene with facility, but starting to think about the future. Is there a long-term vision, whether it's this physical space that you're calling facility or the not-for-profit? There's so many things that it can do, but I want facility to be able to reach out and fund other organizations that are reaching even deeper into like young arts education, like Marwin and things like that, to be able to give them giant dollars to really make their work work. I think that we can keep doing this really bespoke one person to one person work. But I would like facility to also yeah. be able to have great outreach. And also, I, as a professor at the School of the Art Institute, you know, I'm thinking about, I want to be able to give someone that's short in tuition the means to, to go to school or pursue whatever they need to pursue, but need financial support. So scholarships are really a big thing. And, you know, again, we've got the space to do exhibitions, that's just something else. But really, very service sort of driven. In. And I think it's going to be, as it is, always facilitating and in flux. I think it's important for us to always have things up and available that are worthwhile to see. But you never know when a moment comes together where you meet someone where that should happen now and not in two years when there's a space that opens up. And so we can do that because it's our space. And so I think as long as people are always getting something of value, we don't have to have a calendar that works its way out. Are there things that you're working on now that you want to share that are, that are coming up either imminently or things you're working on that maybe are coming up in a couple of years? This year, I've been fortunate enough to be given a commission from the city of Chicago for a permanent public artwork that's sited in between the new police academy, the Joint Public Safety Campus, and the first Boys and Girls Club to go up in 40 years. And so it's an artwork that's informed and created by teenagers from the Boys and Girls Club walking with police officers through the Austin neighborhood to take pictures of things that make them feel safe or free or joyous. And those are going to be used to make a series of artworks, three sculptures, 22 feet tall, and a mural that's 
50 feet long and 10 feet tall, and they'll all be able to see their contributions in that artwork. And that's something that opens in 2023, later this year. June. And I'm not just thinking about Grace Jones. Yes, she's been all over. Everyone's talking about Grace lately. I'm going to address her, I think. Grace Jones? Yeah. Something's coming up. I I don't know. Something's happening. Is that you setting an intention? Like putting that out in the world? But yeah. Okay. Just to be careful. how it works. And then I'll say it and it's going to happen. Well, just leave it at that. <laughs> From Michael Jackson to Grace Jones. Oh my gosh. Range of inspiration. I feel like this is the start of many more things to come. I'm so grateful for your time. I'm just super high from this episode, from this conversation. Like I have, and I haven't smoked anything, but this has brought me to a place that is just very special. I'm super grateful. Thank you for your time, your energy, your work, what you do for people, what you do for the world. And what you do for each other. It's all about love. <laughs> no, but thank We're you both so for being here. excited for, <laughs> for having you both here. And I think you're going to be our friends. I feel like the goal is not only to dress Grace Jones, but you might need to perform. Honey, look, it's all under the same umbrella. Thank you for listening to this episode of Design Tangents with Cool Hunting. Make sure you hit the follow button wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Design Tangents is proud to be part of the Surround Podcast Network. You can check out many other amazing design and architecture-related podcasts at surroundpodcasts.com. That's podcasts with an S. We're psyched to partner with the studio by Sandow to make our show possible. Huge thank you to our production team, Samantha Sager, Rob Schulte, Hannah Vitti, and Wise Grisette. Our theme music is by the amazing Matthew Deere. And thank you to Genesis for presenting this debut season. Stay tuned for the next episode of Design Tangents and learn more about us at coolhunting.com.